Hi, I'm Brian Pearson. This is the Mystic Cave. We were born before the wind Also younger than the sun And our bonnet boat was one As we sailed into the mystic The Mystic Cave is a sanctuary for the seeker. Stories, conversations, and reflections about the spiritual journey on the other side of Churchland. I continue reading from my memoir, Lost Rights, Leaving Churchland. In the last episode, I left my marriage. In this episode, Chapter 12, Part 2, I try to find a lifeline that would lead me back to health and wholeness. But when it comes to healing and to real spiritual growth, the church is all talk. Take one of its ministers, give him or her a few bumps along the road, and the church will turn away so fast it almost breaks its neck. It wants success stories, not tales of woe, victory, not loss. In short, it wants Easter without the cross. Life doesn't tend to work that way, not real life anyway. So this is how the story unfolded. As we sailed into the mistake. Come on, come on. Most people enjoy a degree of privacy and discretion when it comes to their personal lives. Arguing for the decriminalization of homosexual acts, Pierre Trudeau said in 1967... There was no place for the state in the bedrooms of the nation. But the church never got that message. In fact, the more personal the details about someone's life, the more Christians sit up and take notice. The whiff of sex and scandal has far greater sway in grabbing the attention of people in the pews than, say, the eradication of poverty. When Jean and I began to date, several months after my separation from Sandy, We were discreet, but not secretive. We accepted that it was only a matter of time before word would get out and people would have something to say about it. In the meantime, I took the residual guilt I was feeling about leaving my marriage to a trusted older priest for the reconciliation of a penitent or confession. I confessed that I had not loved Sandy as well as I should have. I assumed responsibility for my decision to leave and I committed myself to accepting the consequences, especially with my children, and to working to regain their trust. None of this was public, of course. It didn't help that Sandy told her version of events to friends and parishioners alike, a version that was remarkably dissimilar to my own. But even then, I chose to say nothing. I didn't want a war of words of he said, she said. Like my retreat into myself at Trinity, following my separation from Joan, this was painful and intensely private. But by June 2005, a din rose to my ears and to those of the church wardens at St. Stephen's, requiring that someone say something. Several second-hand reports came to us about things people were saying around the parish. There was speculation about an affair and incriminations about who was in the wrong. I was embarrassed 
and deeply resentful to find a spotlight shining on my personal life. I bristled at the assumption that a minister's marriage shouldn't break up, that somehow I should be above that sort of thing, my ministry precluding the ordinary failings of mortals. It hurt. It was no one's business but my own. We couldn't assess how many people were part of the Grapevine campaign, but it was undermining my ability to do my job. Some Sundays, as I launched into my sermon, several parishioners positioned themselves close to the front, where they sat with their arms crossed, glaring at me. Others were holding private meetings in their homes to discuss the situation. The church wardens responded by calling a special meeting of parish council to explore a way forward. Perhaps prematurely, but generously, the council voted unanimously to support me as I went through this difficult time in my personal life and to stay out of it. Emboldened by the council and furious at the gossipers, I finally dropped my guard and wrote an open letter to the congregation. I cited the epistle of James, which identifies gossip as the main source of division within the church. I apologized for whatever personal failings made me the subject of such gossip. I argued that our failings shouldn't distract us from the work at hand. As long as we remained faithful to God and to the gospel, whatever our flaws, God promised to be with us. So let's all just move on. The response was immediate and overwhelming. Many people had heard nothing, or so little that they wondered what I was even talking about. They called, they took me aside, they sent cards and letters, all encouraging me to stay on at St. Stephen's as I worked through my personal situation. Some said it shouldn't be anyone's business but my own. Some spoke of their own marriage breakups as a way of understanding and respecting mine. But one letter took a different tack. I was a member of the selection committee that took the responsibility of asking you to come to St. Stephen's, she wrote. I now feel that I must personally take on the responsibility of asking you to leave. In the end, we lost six households, including our treasurer, and a church warden who wondered why I got to leave my marriage, leaving me to wonder about her own. Despite the vote of confidence I had received from parish council, I trudged through those hot summer days, distracted and despondent by having become a public spectacle, going through the motions of my ministry. Gerald Smith, a respected elder of the church, took me out for a coffee one day to ask if he or the church could be doing something to help me. It appeared to some that I was depressed and not functioning very well. I was fine, I said, but I thanked him for his concern. Several years later, I would be invited to the house of a young couple to prepare them for the baptism of their newborn son. They were nice people, and I liked them. They seemed strangely familiar to me. On their mantle was the reason why, a framed wedding photograph, with me standing between them. Apparently, during the lost summer of 2005, I had married them. One of the reasons for my despondency was an email I received early in the summer from Bishop Barry Hollowell. Sandy had written a letter to the primate of the Anglican Church of Canada. 
I didn't see the letter myself, but Barry referenced it in his email. She complained of my emotional relationship with a member of my congregation. She alleged there was a sexual relationship as well after I left the marriage. The primate by protocol was prevented from dealing with the matter directly, so he sent the letter down the chain of command to the Archbishop of the Ecclesiastical Province of Rupert's Land, who in turn sent it to Bishop Hollowell, smearing my name all the way down. The bishop, in fact, sent me two emails. One was as my friend, he said, to warn me that the second email was coming, as my bishop. As a friend, he sympathized. It remained unspoken, but I was aware that he was going through a personal crisis of his own, coming out of the closet as a gay man. His own marriage would soon come undone. But as a bishop, he was duty-bound to acknowledge an impropriety and to propose that the woman I was seeing should leave the parish. So Jean left. When members of the congregation got wind of it, they rose up in protest. Jean had been a church member long before I came into the picture, and she was loved by everyone. Her removal from the parish was not acceptable to them. They told her so. Nervously, Jean attended that year's outdoor stampede breakfast and worship service, to test the waters. Rosemary Brown, benevolent and influential, one of the matriarchs of the parish, saw Jean and called her over. You come here, Jean, she said loudly, and sit by me. And that was that. Meanwhile, I learned of an opening in the parish of Banff. Perhaps it would be better all round if I just went away. I applied and was granted an interview. The place had its challenges, a small congregation in a tourist town with a seasonally revolving local population. But after Tofino and Euclulet, those were not unfamiliar challenges to me. They offered me the job. I was tempted, but something stopped me from accepting it. Didn't we say at St. Stephen's that all were welcome here? Didn't we repeat the mantra that the church was not a museum of saints but a hospital for sinners? Wasn't the whole point of the church to be there with love and forgiveness when people suffered to help them through to the other side, resurrection following crucifixion? Then what the hell? What did it say if the minister had to leave the church just because his own life got messy? What hope was there for such a church? None, I decided. I was staying right where I was. Bishop Hollowell was deposed late in 2005. This was unheard of in the church. No one is more powerful than a diocesan bishop, at least in the Canadian church. Archbishops outrank bishops in name only. In Canada, they are not the bosses of their Episcopal colleagues. The only way to remove or discipline a diocesan bishop, apart from bringing legal charges against them, is by peer pressure. In Barry's case, the complaints were not generated from among his colleagues in the House of Bishops. There he might have been considered enigmatic, but not incompetent. 
It was his own diocese that was feeling the enormous void where his leadership should have been, especially given the tensions between traditionalists and progressives among both clergy and congregations. The diocese badly needed a strong hand. But Barry had never really arrived in the first place. Instead, he seemed detached and distracted, as if he had other things on his mind. Following a botched capital campaign and a disastrous move to close a few parishes, the archdeacons had had enough. They arranged a meeting with Bishop Hollowell, an intervention. They offered him a generous package if he agreed to step down. At first, he balked. He threatened to fire Barry Foster, his executive archdeacon, for insubordination. But he must have wondered if his position was really worth defending. He was a closeted gay man in a mob of theologically conservative clergy and backbiting parishes. He could fight for the right to be their leader. But what he really wanted was to disappear, and now he had the cash to do it. Barry Hollowell resigned his position as Bishop of the Diocese of Calgary just before Christmas, opening the way for a new person and a new regime to move the church forward. But the diocese was feeling numb and confused, first by Bishop Hollowell's leadership and then by his sudden departure. Rather than rush into an Episcopal election to replace him, an interim administrator was appointed to keep things going for the time being, the Reverend Derek Hoskin. Derek was a quiet man, not someone to say much at a meeting or stand out at a social gathering. People respected him as hard-working. Stories circulated about him cutting the church lawn and changing its light bulbs rather than incurring the expense for his parish of having someone else do it. He was also fastidious. He had dropped out of law school before studying for the ministry, but his predilection for the administrative and the juridical remained— This made him a good choice for administrator. The diocese seemed to breathe a little easier when Derek, unruffled and doggedly procedural, chaired meetings. He kept the home fires of the diocese burning, sometimes literally late into the night, as evidenced by the time of day on some of his emails. When it came time to elect a new bishop, Derek was, in some people's minds, already doing the job. There may not have been forward movement, or movement of any kind, but neither was there scandal or confusion. For a short time, clergy who differed in their theologies seemed able to live together under his gentle rule. I felt that as much as anyone else. So Derek was consecrated bishop in September of 2006. As things settled down, both in the diocese and in the parish, my personal life was settling down as well. I continued to rebuild my relationship with my children. At first, they resented the intrusion of Jean into my life, which was understandable. But Jean made it easier by being unobtrusive in the attention she paid to them. They already had a mother, and Jean didn't need to act as if they now had a second. With time, they were getting to know one another. At St. Stephen's, Jean and I were enjoying our acceptance as a couple by the congregation. The naysayers had left and we knew we could count on the support of the rest when the day came when way would open for us to marry. We began making our plans for August 2007 at St. George's Anglican Church in Banff, away from the spotlight that had been shining on our lives in Calgary. 
If we wanted to do things by the book, we would apply to the bishop, seeking his permission for us to marry. Technically, since the late 1960s, this was a requirement of any couple seeking remarriage following divorce in the Anglican Church of Canada, but most clergy had long ago stopped submitting such applications. We considered it both a needless indignity for the couple, submitting their life story to a faceless judge and paying an administrative fee for the privilege, and also an infringement of our ability to do our jobs as pastors. But I wanted to be completely above board. Jean and I asked George Belcher, the priest at St. George's, to process the application on our behalf. George was a jolly old soul, and we enjoyed working with him. We didn't mind sharing with him our answers to the questions on the form, reasons for the breakup of the previous marriage, provisions for dependence, and reasons for the stability of the proposed marriage. He sent off the application to Bishop Hoskin along with his own positive recommendation, and we never gave it another thought. A month later, I was at the Synod office with my church wardens for a meeting with the executive archdeacon. As the meeting broke up, Bishop Hoskin poked his head in the door to say hello, which was thoughtful of him. Then he asked if I could drop by to see him for a few minutes before I left. We gathered up our papers, and while the wardens waited for me, I stepped down the hall to his office. The bishop had received the application for my remarriage. Regretfully, he said, he would not be granting his permission. It had something to do with the marriage canon and with the provision for granting or not granting permission in the case of a second or subsequent remarriage. A letter would be sent to George Belcher to that effect. I'm not sure I heard a word he said after not granting. I walked out of his office stunned, like a sheep that had just been gutted by its own shepherd. The church had been a wonderful place for me. It supported me through all the stages of my life, through my childhood with a sense of belonging, through my teens with forbearance, through my adult years with meaningful work. I enjoyed the influence of wise leaders all along the way, father figures, mentors, guides, coaches, who saw something in me worth encouraging. I grew in confidence and in competence to become a credible priest who supported the life and growth of the people I served. The Church for me, as it claimed to be, was a dispenser of grace. Not only did it preach a message of love, it embodied that message in the lives of its members, albeit messily and haltingly, but as far as was humanly possible. That message took root in my life. My spirit rejoiced in the future possibilities of heaven on earth, but even more, my soul reveled in the richness of God's presence here and now. To feel loved by God through the ministries of the Church was a great blessing to me. But the Church's goodness concealed a fatal flaw. I had suspected it all along, going back to my experience as an ACPO assessor, when Jim had to lie about his sexuality to get past the gatekeepers. I felt it myself when, to appease my own ACPO interviewers, I shone the light out my ass and handed them the version of myself they were looking for. 
The truth was, you belonged if you gave the church what it wanted, if you were compliant and dutiful, if you accepted its teachings and didn't stir things up with your doubts and questions, if your personal life didn't draw attention to itself so everyone could just assume the best about you. It didn't trust that a messy life, like mine, could still distinctively, enigmatically, perhaps even prophetically, bear the image of Christ. The Church preferred that we play the roles assigned to us and do as we were told. My divorce from Sandy was regrettable on so many levels. She was wounded, and my children's lives would never be the same. If only I'd known myself better when we first met— If only I'd been clearer along the way about my disappointments and frustrations and more generous in hearing about Sandy's. But how else do we grow to become the people God made us to be, if not by painful trial and error? The Church, for all its wisdom and experience, cannot live our lives for us. Or did it only ever intend for us to carry its message and not actually to try to live it out for ourselves? Like couriers. Bishop Hoskin was a good man. There was no need to interpret his no to Jean and me personally as if he had a grudge or was settling a score. That would have been ludicrously out of character. He was just following orders, doing his job, applying the rules that were on the book for this sort of thing. If either applicant has entered into two or more marriages that have been dissolved, the Commission shall not grant permission unless special circumstances justifying permission are proved. Bishop Hoskin could not see proof of the special circumstances that would allow him to grant us his permission to marry. But I had to wonder if he had considered the consequences. What options had he given me? I could see three. One was to break off the engagement and continue as a divorced but unmarried priest in good standing, as if that was going to happen. Another was to resign my orders altogether, choosing my bride over my duty. Right. Or I could go ahead with the wedding, laying down the gauntlet for a showdown. Now, that could happen. Each option required me to guess Bishop Hoskins' motivation— Was he exerting his new authority and setting me up as an example to others? Was he actually hoping I'd leave? Was he expecting me to challenge him? It reminded me of Bishop Price back in Unionville. Both bishops were hard to read, and I was never sure after I left the Diocese of Toronto for Niagara that I had read Bishop Price right. In the end, I suspected that he was just applying the rules— and that I had misjudged him as being deeper and more political than he really was. What if both bishops were not really leaders at all, but managers, consulting the operating manual rather than setting a course themselves? If so, the rule book had become the master, and these bishops, despite the authority given them, were its slaves. It would mean the triumph of the couriers over the kings, after all. But in reality, Bishop Hoskin hadn't followed the rules. While he was within his rights to make a ruling about my application to remarry, the canons made provision for a consultative committee called the Ecclesiastical Matrimonial Commission to advise him. There had been no commission involved in the making of his decision. There had only been Bishop Hoskin. 
this provided me with a fourth option. I appealed his decision, as was my right, according to the canons. I pressed for a formal ruling by a properly constituted matrimonial commission. I asked for character references and letters of support from the clergy who knew me, and from Marv Westwood in his capacity as my counselor. Bishop Hoskin duly called the commission. He set a date, and they met with my file open on the table before them. One of the commissioners later revealed to me that, as they sat down and saw my name on the application, they wondered what they were doing there. Still, their recommendations would be no more than that, the final decision on my personal life being reserved for the bishop himself. Jean and I waited to hear the outcome. A week went by. Nothing. Two weeks. Three weeks. We were into April now. Planning a wedding for August meant certain plans had to be nailed down, reservations confirmed, deposits paid. We were growing anxious. Finally, in the fourth week with no word forthcoming from the bishop's office, something inside me snapped. Let's just go ahead and make our plans, I said to Jean. Fuck him. The next day, in the mail, I received from Bishop Hoskin a copy of the letter he had sent to George Belcher, giving his consent. But it was too late. I no longer cared about his consent. When, in the weeks leading up to the wedding, he sent us a card with his good wishes, I was unmoved. I was no longer his, or the church's for that matter. I was my own, as I always had been. I just hadn't known it. Leo, my inner lion, who I had only ever summoned when I needed him, now rose up to take his place permanently at my right hand, to join my inner lamb, who shuffled over to the left, accommodating as ever. I would always be sensitive to the needs and wants of others. I was born that way. But now, my own needs and wants would have a place as well. I was born that way, too. I've been reading from my memoir, Lost Rights, Leaving Churchland. Thank you for staying with me. If my story has awakened parts of your own, I invite you to share those. You can leave a post in the Facebook group, The Mystic Cave, or write me personally at mysticcaveman53 at gmail.com. This time, as my journey had darkened, I hadn't moved away. I had faced the darkness and changed as a result. That made all the difference. With the dawning of a new day came not only light, but power. I was entering the days of my greatest creativity. I'm Brian Pearson. This has been The Mystic Cave. It's too late to stop now.